0: It was quite surreal for the Hague portion. Uh, I never thought I would attend an ASP at 4 a.m. in the morning from from my living room.
1: This episode of Asymmetrical Haircuts is supported by JusticeInfo.net.
0: Justice plays an important role.
1: I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments.
0: Such abhorrent crimes must not go unfunny.
1: Proceedings will be long and complex.
2: All right.
1: Welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts. I'm Stephanie van den Berg and as always I'm here with my co-host Janet Anderson. Hi, Janet.
3: Hi, Stephanie. Uh, Stephanie, do you remember last year? I mean, you know, last last year, the year before the pandemic, when they had the annual meeting of the International Criminal Court, the
1: Assembly of States Parties, the ASP, yeah, it was at the World Forum, endless debates, an old fashioned sound system, lots of free coffee and a lot of interesting side events in rooms named after continents and mountains that were always somewhere else than where I thought they were last year. And we managed to make loads of podcasts because we could. We followed as many as issues as we could. Yeah, this year was nothing like that. In December, the Netherlands and everywhere else was pretty much still in lockdown. So it was a really restricted assembly of state parties. In fact, I didn't report much on it at all. So in an effort
3: to remind ourselves of what actually happened, um, what was important, what the states did, you know, the ones that own the ICC, the International Criminal Court, we called up two commentators who did follow it and uh, we thought we should ask them for their highlights.
1: So welcome to Milena Stereo, Professor of Law and Associate Dean at Cleveland Marshall College of Law. She was monitoring the ASP for PILPG, a global pro bono law firm providing free legal assistance to parties involved in peace negotiations, drafting post-conflict constitutions and war crimes prosecutions and transitional justice. Hi, Milena. Hello, it's great to be here. And we've also invited
3: Maria Elena Vignoli. She's counsel at the Human Rights Watch International Justice Programme. Hi, Maria Elena. Hi, really nice to be here. So just before we start, though, I think we should mention, shouldn't we, Stephanie, we're actually recording on Inauguration Day. I've just been watching uh, Trump leaving uh, in his helicopter. How are you guys feeling? Because you're both in the States.
2: Tell us, how does it feel? Well, I I cannot hide my joy and happiness enough. As you you know, this has been a very stressful uh, past four years. And um, as we might have a chance to speak about later, I'm actually involved in a lawsuit against the Trump administration. So honestly, I cannot wait for him to go.
0: Yeah, I'll just say giddy with excitement. I cannot wait for 12 o'clock.
1: So when we go back to the ASP, let's start with what was it like for you, Milena? Is it the same formats, rules? Uh, Did they have the same structure besides there being fewer people there?
2: Sure. So it was quite a bit different than in the previous years. There were several days first at The Hague from December 14th to the 16th. And then that was followed by several days in New York from December 17th to the 23rd. So that was a bit different than in the past, where usually it was either in New York or at The Hague. And the other big difference, obviously, was that most of it was virtual. For us, participants observing from the NGO side, most of it was virtual. There was limited in-person participation at the UN and at the World Forum at The Hague. But for most of us, we were uh, watching things from from, from our homes and, and from our computers. So no rivers and mountains <laughs> in terms of the conference rooms and, and no no cafe. You know, part of the excitement of the ASB are those side conversations that take place at the cafe while you're getting those um, famous Dutch sandwiches and a cup of coffee or tea. N- none of that this year, unfortunately.
1: And for Maria Elena, you at least are based in New York uh, and some of it was in New York. Were you able to physically go to anything or not even that?
0: No, it was impossible to follow the, the resume session here in New York physically. And I have to say it was quite surreal for, for the Hague portion. Uh, I never thought I would attend an ASP at 4 a.m. in the morning from, from my living room. And as uh, Melina said, the the participation of civil society was really limited this year because of the format. Um, NGOs didn't have a format for quote unquote live statements during the the general debate. The agenda didn't include the usual plenaries, like for example, the, the one on complementarity, which are usually opportunities for civil society to engage with the assembly. And initially there weren't even supposed to be side events. So this was really concerning because as you know, civil society is a crucial constituency for for the work of the court, particularly organizations from situation countries that they work closely with affected communities. So uh, at the same time though, it was energizing to see efforts to, to really reclaim this space. The week before the ASP started, civil society organizations um, organized several side events on a variety of very interesting topics, and, and the idea was really to recreate uh, what is a classic platform for civil society and that was not there this year, and to amplify NGO voices. There was even an hashtag on Twitter. And some of those events have actually been recorded, and I believe that they can be found on, on the CICC website. And at the actual ASP session in The Hague, there were several general debate videos or written statements that were submitted by civil society, and, and the coalition for the ICC was even able, at the end of the meeting, to, uh, to make a, a closing statement.
3: If we turn to some of the actual discussions that uh, went on, I mean, I can think of several big issues there. Let, let's take them each in turn. Well, for me, one of the big ones is the new judges, because every, I don't know whether it's every six years or every so on, there's, there's this big influx of judges. This time we got six judges being elected, um, out of, so that's a third of all the ICC judges, a big turnover. So, what happened, Maria Elena? Did you get who you wanted? Do you
0: think that states put up good people? So, during as you said, uh, this happened during the New York portion of the of the session, and states parties elected yes yeah, six new judges, which is uh, one third of the of the bench. And as you know, this is a quite complex system with minimum voting requirements to promote gender balance and geographic representation on the bench as well as representation of different legal system and, and expertise. Um, there were eight, exhausting rounds of, of voting by secret ballots, three of which were were inconclusive. Uh, candidates in, in those in those rounds didn't reach the required majority. Uh, and the election ended really on the last day of the resume session on December 24th at, at 5.30. So they elected these six judges from the UK, Georgia, Sierra Leone, Mexico, Costa Rica, Trinidad and Tobago. One thing to note, it was really good to see that the minimum voting requirement for women, which was one, was exceeded and and four new female judges were elected, bringing really gender party now to the bench. There's nine and nine. And as you know, over the past few years, there really has been a recognition, though, that the system for the nomination election of judges at the ICC needs to improve to ensure the merit based election of the of the most highly qualified judges and there have been efforts to improve this system really spearheaded by our colleagues at the open society justice foundation and this led to some important changes. Last year, the ASB passed a resolution that really significantly strengthened the mandate of the advisory committee on nomination. And we haven't done an analysis of whether these changes had an impact on the outcome of this year's elections. But what we can say is that uh, this really requires continued attention, and it's clear that more needs to, more needs to be done if we want to see a long-term culture shift in the nomination elections. For example, in relation to states campaigning for their candidates, which was still pervasive this year despite the challenges posed by by COVID nineteen, states parties uh, were very creative in this sense, and also national processes for nomination is another area that really needs improvement. And and for example, the the report of an independent expert review offers some specific recommendations on this. We'll talk about
3: the uh, independent expert review uh, in a moment. And maybe I could just
2: ask also Milena, do you have uh, a view on the judges? Sure, just just highlighting very quickly highlighting two themes here. one is this issue of gender parity, which is um as a, as a professional woman very dear to my heart you know the i c c some ten twelve years ago had about fifty percent of female judges to fifty percent male judges, and then that went down fairly drastically to a situation where prior to this election, as Maria Elena mentioned, there were only six female judges. That has now gone back up to nine. So we have nine female and nine female. I think that is a a significant achievement, but something also to keep our eyes and ears on, because it could also... Uh, you know, turn back down again in the in the next election. So something to keep uh, keep our eyes on. And then the other thing that I just wanted to mention is that to me the election of judges, even though it, there's always a dramatic component to it because there's multiple rounds and then judges don't you know it's not we're not done until the the last day. But to to some extent that felt like a repetition of the previous years. There were years where things were when we were in person. There were years when things would end at like one or two a.m. on the last day. So I think my colleague Diane Marie Ayman on a previous episode, which I loved, called it presentism, where we always feel like whatever's happening in the present is the most dramatic, exciting thing. Well, in in some ways, what happened this year seemed to be, you know, like a repetition of, of similar things from the past.
1: And the other big issue at the ASP was, of course, the report of the Independent Experts Review. This was a kind of thorough examination of all the things that independent experts said the ICC should change. Um, It wasn't too complimentary. It wasn't too flattering for the ICC. What will state parties do with it, do you think, Maria Elena?
0: So after the publication of the IAR report at the end of September, there was a broad consensus that there should be a follow-up to ensure that the report doesn't just collect dust on a shelf, but that it's really used to strengthen the court's performance. So at this ASP, states parties adopted a resolution to set up a framework for for this follow-up, and they established the review mechanism, and they tasked it with um, planning coordinating, keeping track of, and regularly reporting on the assessment of the IER recommendations and potential further actions, meaning implementation of the recommendation. And the actual assessment of these recommendations will be carried out by the court and uh, and states parties, for example, in, in relevant working groups, depending on the specific recommendations. Um, the mechanism will be led by, by two states party representatives, supported by three focal points. And states parties, I believe, have until February 16 to appoint the members of the mechanism. And in the meantime, the court will designate its own, its own focal point to interface and engage with the mechanism. So we um, at HRW followed the negotiations very closely and actively engaged with states parties to ensure that in setting up this framework, they really kept the focus on the ultimate goal of the review, which is to strengthen the course delivery of justice. And we also highlighted the main principles that we thought should guide an effective follow-up, which in our opinion are respect for the course judicial and prosecutorial independence, Genuine dialogue among all stakeholders and also transparency. And, and although we would have liked to see stronger language in certain points, as it's often the case in with ISP resolutions, we think that the end result sets up a framework for the consideration of the recommendations that really holds potential. But of course, the setting up of the framework on paper is one thing, it's only the first step. And moving forward, we will keep an, a close eye on, on how, how it's implemented in practice. And civil society of of course, has an important role to play, including through its engagement with the mechanism, as well as in the actual discussions on the substance of of the recommendations.
1: And Milena, you also follow this. What was your sense from the state parties? Because I know it's been received in the court with kind of, of course, we have to look at it, but there were Some parts of the court were quite miffed about some of the reporting, and we all know that the ASP has lots of resolutions and nice mechanisms, and then when things actually have to happen, it goes very, very slow. Do you have a sense that really state parties feel an urgency around this
2: report, and they're really going to do something this time? Um, I I had a a mixed reaction to this. I have to say, you know, first of all, let's keep in mind that the report itself is incredibly extensive with 384 recommendations and 76 of those are prioritized recommendations. So even just focusing on the 76 prioritized recommendations is still a lot. And in some ways, perhaps the report would have been better, you know, had it issued four or five prioritized recommendations that the state parties could truly focus on. Because focusing on 76, you know, even if state parties are super willing to do this, it's still going to take a lot of time. I did sense that there was a general willingness to at least take up some of these, right? But, but I just think that it's unrealistic that we will expect 76 of them to be implemented in the near future, especially when some of them would actually involve changes to the Rome Statute, which we all know is a much more complex procedure. One, I guess, point that there seemed to be some, you know, willingness to do something about was that part of the criticism of the report was this notion that there was a culture of discrimination against women including accounts of sexual harassment at the, you know at the, at the court among its its staff and so um, the registrar peter lewis at the aasb took note of the recommendations issued in this regard in the reco- in the report and said that his office will be, begin recruiting for a focal point for gender office, you know, presumably, you know, some kind of an organ within the court that will do something about this. So I definitely sense the willingness to at least address some of the most serious criticisms in the report.
3: Another of the uh, big issues, sort of overarching things going on at the uh, International Criminal Court is the sanctions by the president against the prosecutor and a member of her staff, which you are involved with, Milena Steria. I mean I'm not suggesting that the sanctions are against you, but you are involved in a case against them. And as we've mentioned right at the top of the podcast, you know, we're seeing this change of power, so everybody's hoping that something's gonna change with the sanctions. But First of all, did states at this Assembly of States parties actually step up and say something about this and
2: and object to it? I mean, was it enough? Um, I don't, it wasn't a ton, in my opinion, as someone who, you know, was potentially facing the fear of being designated for sanctions by the Trump administration, or uh, being slapped with very stiff civil and criminal penalties under a a very um, serious American federal statute. You know, there was an omnibus resolution that was adopted at the ASP condemning attacks on the court in pretty general language. Um, but I frankly did not. I guess that's what I was expecting. Um, but I really um, it would have been nice perhaps to have seen a, a slightly stronger and sort of stronger and more pointed stand, uh, stance against uh, the U.S. on this one.
3: And can you give us a quick update on where we are with your case against uh, the sanctions because we had James Goldstone to explain about it at one point we had Beth Van Schack right before before anybody was actually designated just to explain how incredibly wide and
2: weird your american sanctions are but you know what's now Sure, so our our lawsuit was filed on October 1st, 2020. And originally, according to the rules of uh, federal procedure here in the United States, the government had 60 days to respond to that. The government has now uh, agreed to an extension of that timeline. So the government's response on the merits is now not due until March of 2021. So we're all hoping that actually Either the executive order will be comp- the executive order imposing sanctions will be completely overturned, or at least changed in significant ways. So that's one welcome development that there is this extension. And then the other thing that happened during the uh, during our litigation is that in addition to the actual complaint, we also filed a motion for a preliminary injunction whereby we asked the court to basically temporarily stop the government from designating new individuals from sanctions or imposing penalties under this statute. The motion was uh, partially granted earlier in January of 2021, so just a few weeks. Ago. And we were very, very pleased with that development because at least now we know that the government is temporarily enjoined from imposing stiff criminal and civil penalties on us. And the government, by the way, argued that we were very unlikely to be designated for sanctions. And the judge said, fine, I'm taking, you know, I, I believe you when you say that. Um, so, you know, I don't need to issue a preliminary injunction as to the sanctions part. I'm only going to issue a pre- preliminary injunction as to the penalties part, but I'm taking your government's word for it, which presumably means the government could not turn around and say, just kidding. In the lawsuit, we argued that you were unlikely to be designated for sanctions, but now we're going to designate you for sanctions. So um, with the inauguration, with the extended deadline of March, with the partial preliminary injunction, we're hopeful that we're in, in, in good shape.
1: Milena, so this was the case that, that you're involved in against the sanctions of the ICC. Uh, there's another case. Can you explain that briefly? Because we
2: don't quite know it so well. Sure. So this also is, is breaking news for your podcast. So on uh, January 15th, so just a few days ago, there was a second lawsuit which was filed in a different federal court in the United States. Our lawsuit was filed in the Southern District of New York, so really Manhattan. Now there's a second uh, lawsuit that was filed in the Northern District of California, so a different you know, federal judicial circuit, involving uh, four individual plaintiffs, three of which are law professors, and one is an ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union staff attorney, and that lawsuit is also supported by the ACLU, also against the Trump administration, also against the sanctions regime on similar grounds as our lawsuit. Our lawsuit was filed on uh, First Amendment and Fifth Amendment grounds under the U.S. Constitution. The second lawsuit is filed only on First Amendment grounds. And the other difference between the lawsuits is that the way that the sanctions regime works is that only foreigners or dual citizens are subject to designation for sanctions sanctions. And then Americans can also face civil and criminal penalties under this federal statute. So in our lawsuit, um, we actually needed to have plaintiffs who were dual citizens because we're making the argument that the sanctions itself, that that part is unconstitutional. In the second lawsuit, because these are American plaintiffs, they're not dual nationals, they're only focusing on the civil and criminal penalty side. The reason I think I'm speculating, the reason I think that this was filed in California is that that judicial circuit tends to be more liberal and more open to challenges to the executive branch. So we're watching that one also um, very eagerly um, and hoping that that one is either that that lawsuit is either successful or, again, that the Biden administration steps in and overturns the executive order, in which case all of this goes away.
3: I suppose everything in everybody's world is happening against the background of COVID. And that's just as much the case with these sanctions as it is with the ICC's budget. So again, back to the ASP itself, nothing really seemed to change with the budget. Am I right, Maria Elena? I mean, it's, um, everybody kept on asking for more, but nobody, but nothing actually, no, no more money was come through, which means, for example, the preliminary examinations for Ukraine
0: and Nigeria can't go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. This year, states approved the budget, which was 144,673.9 million, uh, which was in line with the recommendations of the the CBF. And this is a 0.7% decrease from last year. And while, as you said, really the financial constraints caused by the the COVID-19 pandemic certainly played a role, this is really the continuation of a trend towards near zero growth that's, that's been in place for for the last five years. It was good actually during the assembly to see that when the budget resolution was adopted, a group of fifteen states parties made a statement expressing concern, but this is not enough. And as you mentioned, the, the, the prosecutor's decision on on the two preliminary examinations in, in Nigeria and Ukraine really pushed the issue. To the front, although the budget itself, the decision was reached before the beginning of the ASP and, and the budget wasn't really an issue present per se at, at the ASP. But the fact that really in an unprecedented move when, when the prosecutors announced the conclusion of, of the, the preliminary examination, she also said that DOTP will have to consider uh, the operation operational challenges, including the court's limited resources and the impact of the pandemic to, to make future decisions this uh, and the fact that she also spoke to to the dire resource situation in Rafis during a statement um, at the opening of the ASB and to us it's really important that states parties look at this uh, at this announcement on on Ukraine and Nigeria which are effectively put on hold as a wake-up call for for next steps and and going back very briefly to to the IAR report we think that that actually offer some some good idea of uh, some some good ideas for for the way forward uh, particularly when the experts recommend that the court states parties and civil society engage in a discussion on on a strategic vision for the court for the next 10 years. And the outcome of this discussion should be an agreement on the expected and desired level of activity of the court in in 10 years' time and the steps, including the needed resources, to to gradually basically get there. And and we think that the court and and states parties should consider this recommendation as a matter of priority and, and that the court should lead in setting this vision. And that this articulation, the articulation of this vision really provides a platform to to renew the the consideration by states parties of how resources can be made available to the court and on what um, on what time frame.
1: This kind of leads us uh, naturally into the big thing that we're also all looking at at the ASP, which is the. Election of the new prosecutor, and we still don't have a clear, or I think we still don't have a clear front runner for for the next prosecutor. So, Milena, what are the latest rumors? What are you hearing? Let's let's compare what we what everybody's hearing and and find out where we are.
3: Isn't this in fact um, ASP part three, Milena, that we're looking at coming up?
2: Yes, uh, we really are, because the ASP at the ASP in December, the um, ASP decided to defer the election of the prosecutor to its second resume session. At that point, they said sometime in January or February. So they, they, in in American football parlance, they punted it down the road. Um, And so we are looking at basically the second iteration of of the ASB. What I just heard as of this morning, so this is breaking news, was that the second round of state consultations were just completed. And it looks like out of the nine outstanding candidates, because as, as, as our listeners know, there was a short list of four that was, that was then expanded in the fall of 2020 to, to more. So we had a list of nine. Um, out of the nine, what I heard this morning was that after the second round of state comp- consultation was completed, the two front runners, um, if I could mention their names, um, include the um, Irish candidates, and then um the UK candidate Kareem Khan. So those seem to be the top 2 after the second round of consultations. We'll see what happens next, but those seem to be the top 2.
1: I think you're I think we've also heard or well we are still trying to lobby to get everybody, right? All the other candidates and we had some candidates reach out to us and say, "Well, you know, we were just told that probably this won't be us, so we're not going to do the interview with you." So uh, but the person's well, we already interviewed the Irish candidate and we're still uh, chasing up (laughs) the other number one. Yeah, it looks like those are those are the
2: ones that are have have come to the front now. But 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 as you know, if I just might jump in with this, I do think that the process has been tarnished in some ways, you know, because there's this initial committee of experts appointed with uh, uh, independent experts to assist the committee they came out with a list of four, and then all of a sudden the state parties are like, wait a second, wait a second, no, no, no. You know, We don't like the four, we're gonna expand this. So you know, there was a first series of public interviews with the four in the summer. Then when the list is expanded, there, there were additional public interviews in December, as you know, right before the ASP. In the meantime, there are NGO voices asking for appropriate vetting procedures to be put in place, because there have been allegations of sexual misconduct harassment um, against some of these candidates. But at this point, it's really all hearsay because we don't have proper vetting procedures in place. And so, you know, speaking personally, I'm actually very displeased with how this process has played out for arguably the most important position at the court. I, I think it's, it, it's truly a shame. And I think if, if I could think of changes for the future, I would hope that the election of the next prosecutor nine years from now goes a lot more smoothly.
3: Well, I think we're going to uh, wrap up the podcast with our usual questions. Let's start with you, Milena. Is there anything that we missed that uh, that we should have uh,
2: asked about, particularly related to the ASP? Um, The one issue that I would just very briefly touch upon is one of the recommendations in the IER was one of the um, things that the IER noted and then issued a recommendation reg- with regard to is that at the court, there doesn't seem to be a lot of staff turnover, which results in very few opportunities for career growth because the ICC is a phenomenal employer. It's a very prestigious institution, despite its flaws. Um, and so when people are hired there, they tend to stay forever. And especially after the ICTY and the ICTR closed, there was this influx influx of very talented professionals who were, you know, many of whom were hired by the ICC, and so now we're in this situation where nobody's really leaving once they're there. And so one of the recommendations of the report is that there ought to be some kind of a limit for senior staff, not so much for the, you know, sort of P1, P2, but at the more higher levels, there ought to be some limit of nine years, eight years, whatever, you know, whatever that might be, and after that point in time, the person would have to leave. As you can imagine, this is not a very popular recommendation within the court itself, and I would say that even among the academic and um, NGO commentators, there's sort of opposing views on this, some who seem to be in favor, some, some, some who seem to be against. I think I lean more on the in favor side because I do think that it's a shame, especially if we want to promote gender, racial, other kinds of diversity within the court, that we need to be able to create opportunities for career growth within the institution. And the only way you can do that is if you have some kind of limits, some kind of way of saying, look, you've been here for 25 years, you know, you need to make room for someone else. I know that sounds harsh, but, but I but I think I, I, I lean that way for now.
3: And Maria Elena, is there anything that we missed out for that you'd like to touch
0: upon? so I wanted to go back I guess to uh, to the elections because in addition to the six judges and hopefully the upcoming election of the new prosecutor there was also the election of the leadership of the Assembly of states parties the new president of the assembly was uh, was elected at the resumed session in New York and the the person that was elected was Sylvia Fernandez de Gourmendi who as uh, as you know was uh, previously the the court's president and uh, she had also served as the chief Chief of Staff of the first ICC prosecutor, Luis Molino Ocampo. The Assembly also elected uh, its bureau. Uh, however, the, the vice president has still not been, been elected. And I think that will be part of the you know ASP Part 3 that will happen in early February.
1: And our question in the spirit of embracing uh, mistakes and learning along the way is, is there any kind of, not a teaching moment, but a mistake you made or some notion you had in the beginning of your career where you now think, "Mm, hmm, I've changed my mind once I've seen how things work that you want to share with us? Uh, We'll start with Milena. Um,
2: Regarding the court or anything in general?
1: It, uh, regarding the court, if you have any life lessons to impart, we're also welcome. But this is kind of career-wise, like some assumption that you made before you went into this field, and you're now like, that didn't quite uh, measure up to what I thought it would going to be, or I changed quite a bit of what I thought in the beginning.
2: That's a great. That's a great question. That's a difficult question. That you know. Th- thank you for that. I think. I definitely going into the field, I had this assumption that everybody working for the court or at the time, you know, the ICTY and the ICTR and the other other tribunals were still around. I somehow thought that they were superhuman. You know, these people had these amazing resumes and amazing careers. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, you know, they're really superman or superwoman. Once I started attending the ASP and actually meeting them, I realized, yes, they're very talented people, but they're people just like us. And you can have a conversation with them at the cafe, you know, maybe not so. much in 2020 but in the prior years Um, and they're not perfect you know they make mistakes and the judges make mistakes and the prosecutors make mistakes and I, I realize that we as academics as NGOs we have the chance to influence their work through these informal conversations, and then also through our formal writing podcasts uh, uh blogs, that kind of a thing, so so I think to me the myth of them as being sort of superhuman and perfect was was dispelled, even though they are amazing, you know again they're 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 you know men and women just like us
1: and
0: Maria Elena. I guess to me, an important lesson was really the fact that to, to fully understand the, the work of the court and its, uh, and its impact on the, the communities that it's supposed to, to serve, it's, it's important to get out of the Hague and, and really go and engage, go to the, to the situation countries and engage with, uh, with those communities. And I'm saying that because I worked for a couple of years uh, at the ICC before moving to Eastern DRC, where I worked with uh, affected communities in Tory on uh, Truth and Reconciliation uh, projects. And to me, it, it was an eye-opening experience to really see how far removed I was while in The Hague from I mean not only physically from the situation and from these people but also how skewed my understanding was of the role of the court and really all the work that still needs to be done for for the court to, to have a real impact on on the on, on the affected community. So I think that is sort of the biggest lesson to learn I've uh, I I can share so far and
3: our final question Maria Elena is is there anything that you are currently reading or recently been reading been watching been listening to that you'd like to recommend to everybody else
0: so I just finished the most beautiful and probably most difficult book I've read in in the past few years. It's uh, Beloved, uh, which is a novel by the late Toni Morrison. And it's an incredibly yeah difficult book. It's based on the true story of a woman who escaped slavery. And, and when she was caught, she killed one of her children because she didn't want her to, to go through what she had endured. And it's a very powerful book and it explores incredibly difficult issues with, with grace and it's beautifully written. And I think it's a particularly important read in this moment in time when there are ongoing discussions about the legacy of slavery, systemic racism, especially here in the U.S. and, and, and how, how to address them.
1: Milena, do you have anything on your uh, bedstand uh, or any podcast you'd like to recommend?
2: Um, Actually, a a book that I just reread, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, Things Fall Apart by the Nigerian author Chinua Achebe, which I had read years ago when I was in high school. And at the time I remember liking it, but I don't think I I truly comprehended it fully. I mean, I understand, you know, understood the plot, but I don't know that I really understood the theme as much as I do today. So first of all, I hope this is not a theme for the ICC. (laughs) I hope we can, (laughs) you know, that that's not it, but I just, um, it's such a powerful theme of how easily a somewhat perfect society and culture can can crumble, and so you know I, I don't want us to end on a, on a too uh, pessimistic note, um, but but I thought it was a uh, you know such a powerful theme, such a powerful message, and you know something that applies to societies you know throughout our civilization.
3: Great, thank you, and thank you both very much for uh, taking time out from uh, what's an incredible strange day, inauguration day in the United States, to to chat to
2: us. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you.
1: Thank you. And um, we'll keep in touch. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast hosted by me, Janet Anderson. And me, Stéphanie van den Berg. You can find out all about the show and why we interview women experts on our website, asymmetricalhaircuts.com. Where you'll also find all the ways to subscribe
3: and don't miss an episode. Do that. You can follow us on Twitter as well at asymmetrical H.
1: This show was brought to you in partnership with justiceinfo.net. Music is by audionautics.com. Stay safe and enjoy your day.